0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data?
2: Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, where we bring you big ideas from our island of Tasmania. And this is the third part of our mini-series all about space. You'll know that my name is Neve. I'm joined by our co-host Ryan Smith, and that I don't really know very much about space. So I'll be looking forward to talking more to our expert guest today. But I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa and Pacana people, as we record on Lutruwita and I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you're listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. So today is the wrap-up of our mini-series. I hope other people have learned as much as me so far. But Ryan, can you tell me a bit of information about what today's episode is going to be about and our expert guest?
0: Yeah, so thanks, Neve. It's great to be here again. Uh, Today we're talking with Professor Andrew Cole from UTAS, and he's a professor of astronomy, And he's using an array of telescopes, both on the ground and also in space, to explore and characterize the Milky Way and also our neighboring galaxies. So Andrew, it's lovely to have you on our podcast today. You were born in the outer suburbs of Long Island, New York, but in 2007 you were lured to Tasmania by a new 1.3 meter telescope. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I kind of had the traditional scientific career after I got my PhD. I had a series of short-term contracts, two to three years. And uh, at the end of one of those, I was kind of uh, sick of applying for jobs that often, so looking for something a little bit more permanent. And a lot of the jobs at the time were not in my area of specialization. And um, so I was extra watchful for anything involving optical telescopes and, uh, you know, things that were suited to studies of the relatively nearby universe. And I saw this job advertised where they said, all right, we're uh, we're replacing our old one-meter telescope with a brand new 1.3-meter telescope, and we need somebody who can come in and set some scientific direction and help make it all kind of run smoothly. And I thought, well, that's a fantastic opportunity. And, uh, yeah, to be honest, I didn't know anything about the University of Tasmania. knew very little about Australia at all, really. But I thought, oh, I should apply for this. And in the worst case scenario, maybe I'll get an interview and I'll get a free trip to Tasmania. But, uh, yeah, when they offered me the job, it was like, oh, that's a big decision. I have to move, move a long way. And I uh, just thought, yeah, go for it.
2: I really like that story. It resonates a lot with my own. I remember when I... Um heard first about moving to Tasmania to pursue research. I like did not know where Tasmania was <laughs> at all. And I was like, sure, is that is that part of Australia? <laughs> so it's nice to hear that you were lured there, but also that uh, point three of a difference like s- between the telescopes, was it were they upgraded in any way or does that actually help it see more stuff?
1: Yeah, so th- the main difference was the older telescope was built in uh, early nineteen seventies and it's just a very traditional kind of design built to do a specific type of science that really wasn't that uh, cutting edge anymore. And the bigger problem was that it was between uh, Hobart City and the airport. And in the 1970s, there wasn't very much light pollution in that area, but now it's you know, filled with houses and, and shops and things. Um, it's just light pollution making it much less useful than it previously was. And given the original design in the 1970s, it would have been extremely difficult to retrofit it for uh, remote use. And really what we'd like is to be able to run that telescope from the Sandy Bay campus or from Launceston or anywhere in the world. And it's easier to design that in from the beginning if you can. So there are a couple of different motivations to have a larger mirror. uh, To go from 1 to 1.3 meters sounds a little bit uh, incremental, but because the light-gathering power goes like the area of the mirror, um, it's not 30% more light, it's 60-some percent more light. Wow. Uh, so it does make uh, quite a bit of difference, actually.
0: Yeah. So what fascinates you about space, Andrew? Because it's quite a big move and you've dedicated your whole life to studying it.
1: Well, once you get into it, the tendency is just to keep going, uh, push it as far as you can. Um when I started uni, uh, I was interested in science, but I wasn't quite sure what area. Um, but I had an amazing astronomy teacher my first year, and so that sort of made the decision for me. It's just like, that's what grabbed my attention. Um, and just, uh, I guess, generationally, you know, I was uh, five years old when Star Wars came out, and um, there was the Apollo-Soyuz cooperation between the Americans and the Russians and the space station um, launch of the Voyager spacecraft to explore the outer solar system. It's all just like part of my childhood, and it was just like, I can't believe this is something I can actually do. This is this is awesome. So, yeah, that became my major subject at university. And then I thought, well, I've done this. No, I guess I should just go get a PhD. <laughs> and I kind of snowballed from there.
0: Yeah, it's so cool that, like, science allows us to explore our curiosities and I think we all have those little things where, you know, myself, I started off in plants and I grew up on a farm and I'd look at grass or something and I was like, that's really cool. I want to know more about how that actually works and how it grows. Um, and one of our recent endeavours is the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope and that ties perfectly into that exploration of, you know, it almost seems like it's out of a movie or something that we're seeing so deeply into space. And obviously that fascinates you.
1: So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's amazing. Just the amount of effort and uh, technical skill and uh, sort of engineering development that's gone into it because this telescope is the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched in 1990. And before Hubble had even launched, astronomers were considering what the next thing would be. And so this has been a three-decade-long process of developing the right technology uh, to answer the scientific questions. People weren't even sure what those questions were at the time. They were sort of guessing, like, all right, we think we know what Hubble is going to discover. I wonder if we could possibly uh, project, you know, what will come after that, what sort of... Telescope, would we need to do what Hubble can't do? And in 1990, it was simply just not possible. Uh, but I said, all right, well, let's work towards this. We need like these five different things to go perfectly right, and we'll develop the technology. Um, originally, this telescope was meant to launch in about 2006 or 2007. And just the nature of the way progress has to go ended up being 2021. So a number of us, uh, myself among them, were actually a little bit skeptical about the whole thing because of all the different delays and of all the different components that had to work exactly right down to, you know, one thousandth of a millimeter precision a million kilometers away. Um, The fact that it actually is performing better than the specification, better than expected, is just uh, really fantastic. Um, It's a lot of work ahead to try and understand the science that comes out of it and to make it pay off just the amount of really hard work and you know just cool innovation that went into making it go is is fantastic.
2: I love that Um, I think kind of what you described there capture is the mentality of the whole discipline of STEM where it's just like cool we've made something but what do we want to do next like how can we push the boundaries even further so that we understand the niche area we're interested in more but also the number of different fields or specialties that would be required to make something like that. But I also like that you talked about your childhood being inspired by Star Wars and things like that. And I actually think that these images will inspire a whole new generation of people to think about what's out there. Because even me, who's not that interested in that, found them really beautiful and quite compelling to understand what was I looking at.
1: Yeah, I think the potential for uh, just reaching... Huge numbers of the public with just the images is amazing because um, people are really, really creative about the way they interpret this scientific data, and you can you can either play it uh, completely straight and just say, you know, here's data, this is an array of numbers, I'm going to fit a model to this and interpret that and compare that to some simulation or a physical theory, or you can take the exact same data set say, I'm going to treat this as an artistic um, moment or a moment to you know, think about the meaning of, of the universe and you know, where we came from, where we're going. And the fact that the, the images that are delivered can be like, so flexibly interpreted by people and used for so many different things is, I think, one of the reasons, um, you know, it's this massive investment, billions of dollars, but I think the payoff is, is there in just so many different areas.
2: Yeah, wonderful. Stick with us, listeners, and we'll be delving more into Andrew's work in Tasmania in just a moment.
0: You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking with Professor Andrew Cole about the nature and origins of the universe. I'm Ryan Smith, and I'm joined by our wonderful host, Neve Chapman. Andrew, before the break, we were briefly speaking about the excitement surrounding the new James Webb Space Telescope images. How are you using images like that or past data in your research?
1: So uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is the origin of our Milky Way galaxy. One of the great things about uh, the Milky Way is that We can zoom in and see in really individual star-by-star detail. Every star kind of uh, has a a story associated with it. It has an age, it has a chemical composition, and it has uh, its own motion through the galaxy. So you think of a galaxy as being like this pinwheel of stars that's rotating around, kind of spinning like a Frisbee or or something like that um, in a nice sort of spiral made up of billions of stars. But within that, each individual star will have its own sort of uh, proper motion. And one of the things I do is uh, study how the motions and the chemistry and the ages correlate with each other, try to trace these stars back to their origin. And then it's sort of like, uh, it's like archaeology or it's like, putting a puzzle together trying to see how the different pieces came together and how the milky way formed and how it evolved over billions of years to do that we need uh really good images of star fields and we need to be able to separate out individual stars from one another so they're not just not just a hazy blur of light but individual pinpoints that we can really accurately measure and that really uh took a huge leap with the Hubble Space Telescope because getting up above the blur of the Earth's atmosphere just opened up a whole new range of possibilities. And the James Webb Telescope will push that even farther by being a bigger mirror and by um, sort of looking at a slightly different wavelength of light that will uh, just sort of shift our perspective a little bit and also increase the the sharpness of the stars and the faintness of the stars that we can see. And and you can break up the light into its component wavelengths and study it to learn things like uh, the speed of the thing that's creating the light or the individual chemical elements that are in there. So in some sense, that's uh, very different from a traditional kind of camera. Um, But ultimately, it's somewhat the same in that you're taking light and you're recording it. And then someone's either just looking at it or scanning it in and and studying the pixels. So how do we actually use those diffraction
0: gradients or the colors produced to interpret things like elements or distances
1: or speeds? So every element in the periodic table has its own uh, kind of chemical fingerprint. So hydrogen looks different from helium, which looks different from oxygen or magnesium. And by studying the spectrum of atoms and molecules in the laboratory, uh, we learn what those fingerprints are. And they're exactly the same out in interstellar space or in the distant universe. So we can recognize that that oxygen is out there. We can recognize that carbon or hydrogen is out there. Another thing we can do is uh, look at the Doppler shift of those. And that is exactly the same technique that the speed cameras use to catch you uh if you're going over the the bridge here in Hobart or uh somebody's uh got you with the radar gun uh going off the Midland Highway uh you just watch how that chemical fingerprint shifts and it's the shift that tells you tells you the speed so we can measure that stars are moving towards us or away from us at uh, at some rate of kilometers per second
2: so when you get these images um again to be nice you've de- you're not like looking at that picture and then visually comparing the distance between the pixels that are stars. Like, is it a numeric output that then you make sense of?
1: We should always start by just looking at the image. People have missed a lot of obvious things by going straight to the numerical uh, recipe and um, you know, plugging in their favorite very complicated algorithm to try and extract some obscure information where they've missed something really obvious just because they haven't put the image up on their screen and gone oh yeah yeah sh- I should have seen that
2: so it's uh, literally looking at th- the picture that's been presented or captured by the telescope and describing the features that are on it and making sense of that based on what you already know or have observed previously
1: yeah um it can be just that just that simple wow. we look at the Look at the press release for the James Webb images where they showed a big picture of a cluster of galaxies a few billion light years away. And the thing that was really interesting about that was what was in the background of the image and how the gravity of that cluster had warped space and sort of distorted the images of the things that were in the background. And you could just look at that and say, wow, Okay, there's a lot going on. Different things are sh- sheared into like arcs, or things that should be nice and circular or, like totally stretched out into blobs. And then you say, "All right, well, I know how to, I know how to model that." But these are the things I should be paying attention to. So you kind of take a take a first look, and it really is just just a matter of looking. Then after that uh, comes whatever. Um, sort of taking the data, plotting it in a graph, deciding what it is that you need to plot uh, in that graph. Um, So whether it's brightness as a function of position or brightness as a function of wavelength or color as a function of position, there's many, many different uh, ways that people will slice and dice the data in order to try and get at the information they want.
0: So do you think it's almost easier than to look at things that are closer because they're not as likely to be warped by gravity or
1: there's a sort of a feeling that the further away something is the easier it is because the less detail you can see. So if everything looks like a blob, then it's easy to say, Oh, I can, I can tell a scientific story about what's going on here. And it doesn't need to be so complicated. Uh, whereas when things are close, you get to see them, you know, warts and all, uh, every detail, everything that doesn't fit the model, uh, everything that um, can possibly uh, go wrong. Um, And so in some ways, the closer something is, the more difficult it is to get an adequate understanding of it. But on the other hand, when something is close by, you get a lot more light from it, and that that always helps as well. So does that mean there's a lot more of a sort of contention than when we're
0: studying the Milky Way? Do people then get excited or upset about the
1: story that you're trying to tell about its origin? Um not so much upset. Um but people do have pet theories that they that they will advocate for and people can get a little bit territorial about uh certain things. I say, "Well, that's that's my project. I'm I'm the one who's working on that and um you know, your your evidence isn't isn't very good." Um uh, and you know, sometimes well, you can't keep the human element out of science. It's a human human endeavor. So, um, yeah, people will, uh, will sort of get a little bit defensive. If you have to be careful to, to criticize a theory and not a person. Um, with something like the Milky Way, obviously, uh, the big picture is really well known. The basic facts have been established for decades. Um, so people find other things. They want to know in detail what's going on. Uh, what about... This specific set of elements, what about this specific part of the Milky Way? Uh, How did the whole thing sort of fit together? Was it 8 billion years ago or 10 billion years ago when a certain event happened? And ultimately, like in physics terms, they'll say, well, what's the important process that's governing uh, this behavior? Uh, Is it more hydrodynamic or just gravitational Uh, is dark matter the answer or can you explain things with ordinary matter and the more you learn I think for every question that's answered probably two questions come up so you're never finished even if something is quite nearby and and quite well studied.
2: So Andrea I asked Georgia this in the last episode but building on what you said there but for every answer that you get you get two more questions how do you know in physics where there's so many known unknowns if what you've deducted as correct.
1: So you can never prove a theory correct. You can only prove a theory incorrect by finding some evidence that falsifies it. So they, in principle, you could imagine if you started with a completely blank slate, you might be able to come up with four different theories that all equally well explain some observation. And the art of science is then to look at those four different theories and try to understand what they predict about something that you haven't yet observed. And the goal is you devise a test, you go out and you perform that test, and you rule out one or two or three theories, and hopefully one of them is just still uh, acceptable. If you rule out all the theories, then then you've created a big headache for everybody. So you can never be 100% sure that you've got the one and only correct answer, but you can say this theory or this equation or this story explains all of the available observations and it doesn't conflict with anything else so it'll never be a matter it'll almost never be a matter of just one paper or one individual researcher coming up with something that you know, throws away everything or is a completely new unprecedented result it's the sort of weight of evidence of many different, many different lines of observation and many different lines of theory so the goal is to be, to be mathematically consistent and sort of philosophically consistent, which, which I mean you kind of have the same underlying assumptions. And uh, if you can kind of work your idea into that self-consistent framework, then um, yeah, you can go with it and consider it to be true until you find an observation that proves it wrong. <laughs> but it's actually really cool if you find something that nobody predicted or that contradicts something that everybody thought was going to be there. That's actually, uh, it's maybe just my personality, but it's actually more fun when you find something that's completely unexplained or you know, completely uh, messes, messes something up.
2: Is there like a scientific aha moment for you that stands out? Because I love the idea of tinkering and then finding that image and being like, wow, that's really exciting. But is there like one that really stands out for you?
1: I guess the first thing that stands out for me is not really – it's not like historically scientifically important, but it's just in my career, which is uh when I was doing my PhD and it was the first time I got to travel to a uh a big telescope on my own. So it was uh, I was doing my PhD in the US and uh I traveled down to South America to use a four meter telescope in Chile to uh get some data for my PhD thesis. And um it was just Pushing, pushing a certain spectrograph just a little bit further than it had been done before, and it wasn't, it wasn't completely unprecedented or anything, uh, like earth shatteringly new, but just seeing the data come up on the screen and knowing, knowing that I'd planned that observation, and that um, you know that nobody had thought to do that before or nobody had attempted that specific thing before, and seeing it come up and, and just seeing that it worked. Was, was kind of the most most amazing thing. So I guess the aha moment was just something that, you know, anybody could have done, but nobody had done. Um, another aha moment was after I'd come here in, uh, in 2015 when the, the 1.3 meter telescope was actually up and running. We were part of a program that we used data from a bunch of different telescopes and tried to detect planets around other stars. And... Ordinarily, that's fairly routine work. I don't want to say boring, because something always happens that makes it not boring, but, but pretty routine. Um, but we were actually just trying to make the 1.3-meter telescope work. Um, so it was one of the very first nights that it was kind of working. And we were spending the night not doing science, but trying to understand how the camera was performing as it was integrated with the mirror. And basically, trying to come up with a way to subtract off moonlight, the moon was kind of making things difficult for us. And it was uh, it was minus one degrees. It was very humid, uh, just ice kind of all everywhere. We were running up to the top of the telescope every ten minutes to make sure that there was no like ice forming on the top. Finally, we said, "All right, this is getting pretty pretty uh, awful." We're not really making any progress. The conditions aren't great. We should go home. Uh, It's midnight or something. Um, But as we were packing up to go, I get a text message from a collaborator in Paris. It's the middle of the workday for them. And uh, and they said, this uh, event, uh, this particular star, which is a candidate to have a planet around it, it's just become extremely interesting, um, very suddenly. So, what the text message said was just the name of the star, and it just said observe to the death. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, we we start up, uh, you know, s- went slewed over there and uh, just observe that that particular star um, until sunrise. Uh, watching it get brighter and then fainter in real time, and knowing that every other observatory in Australia had cloud at the time, so we were literally the only people on Earth who were observing it, and then going to bed at the end of the night, not knowing what would come out of that. But when I woke up the next afternoon, there was another email that said, all right, we've done a preliminary analysis of this, and you know, it looks like there's probably a, a planet uh, in uh, orbiting this star, so that was one of those like memories that's kind of seared into the uh, into consciousness for a long time, just because it was so kind of intense and um, just like all right, all hands on deck, we got to make this work. Mm-hmm. To have it pay off was uh, very cool.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like it's been a really fulfilling career for you, and I really like the way that you've shared all of the different aspects of what you enjoy, but also the challenges of pursuing your area of interest. I love hearing other people talk about their work. And I hope all of you have enjoyed this mini series about astrophysics and space and things that I really am not familiar with. So thank you, Ryan, so much for co-hosting this mini series and putting it together and finding some amazing local talent for us to talk to. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember that you can find all of our previous episodes on our website, that's science.org, if you'd like to listen back to any of the other amazing episodes in this series. Until next time, my name's Neve. Thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at EDGE Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies.
1: Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.